Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn. Um, I'm excited today to have with us Dr. Uh, Bruce Miller. He's a world-renowned behavioral neurologist um, focused on dementia with a special interest in the relationship between brain and behavior. Um, he's at the University of California, San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Miller. Thank you. Uh, I'm really honored to be with you today. So let's, I mean, we get so many questions about how Alzheimer's disease, dementia, uh, impacts behavior. And that perhaps is the hardest part for caregivers looking after their loved ones. Uh, let's just start with um, what is happening inside the brain to change behavior with this disease? Yes, I think it's really a, a a very important question, and in part because it's really been neglected in research. I think we have had a single-mindedness about Alzheimer's disease that it is a memory disorder and have focused primarily on the memory problems. But the memory problems may not be the, the, the biggest issue for a family. And I think we know uh, often that there are behavioral changes associated with Alzheimer's disease, even in the fairly early uh, stages. So uh, one of the things that is coming clear is the hippocampus is not only important for memory, and that's where Alzheimer's disease begins is in the hippocampus, but also it affects anxiety. It is really very, very common to see a patient with early Alzheimer's disease sometimes even before they manifested a memory uh, disorder, to be uh, anxious, hyperreactive, uh, very, uh, very concerned about things that are going on around them. Uh, and sometimes that's a, a, a incredible burden to the caregiver. Uh, we know that from early Alzheimer's disease where behaviors relatively normal in many people, um, many exceptions, uh, as the disease progresses, behavior almost always becomes part of what we face. Uh, so as a loved one loses their uh, higher cognitive functions, uh, we uh, often hear about severe anxiety, agitation, uh, irritability is extremely common uh, in people with Alzheimer's disease. And as the disease progresses, even things like hallucinations, uh, delusions or false beliefs. This is uh, someone who is cleaning the house who the patient believes is stealing things from them. They misplace their purse, it must be someone else. Uh, delusions uh, sometimes occur about the loved one uh, and their face, and this is not really my wife, this is uh, an imposter. And, uh, this is extremely hard to manage and also extremely uh, difficult for caregivers to face. And I think it's probably the biggest part of the burden of Alzheimer's disease. It isn't the memory per se, it's these behaviors as they emerge. And as the disease progresses, uh, this is almost invariable. Uh, biggest factor in determining caregiver health uh, and also a huge factor in, um, in families deciding to place their loved one. So when you talk, uh, what I found interesting about what you just said is, you know, Alzheimer's disease obviously presents itself first in the hippocampus. Yeah. Um, 
And I had always thought that behavior, um, like when we talk to people who have loved ones who are suffering from FTD, frontal temporal lobal dementia, they talk about um, the first thing they notice is not necessarily memory problems, but it's more behavioral problems. It's um, odd behavior being exhibited that that wasn't like the person. Um, so what I always understood that maybe with FTD, it's attacking the frontal lobal um, part, you know, part of your brain, which is more responsible for behavior. Um, but now we can like if, if if it's happening with Alzheimer's and you have earlier displays of behavioral changes, then how much do we know about yes. where behavior is controlled inside the brain? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, I, I should state right up front, you're exactly right. I think in Alzheimer's disease, the behavior may be quite normal for long periods of time. And uh, uh, in frontotemporal dementia, that's never the case. Frontotemporal dementia, which begins in the frontal lobes and the anterior temporal lobes, uh, way before someone develops a memory problem, we are seeing bad behaviors, and they're different than that we see in Alzheimer's. We see disinhibition, people commit antisocial behaviors, crimes. Uh, they are profoundly apathetic, uh, hardly move from in front of a television. Uh, they overeat. Uh, they develop repetitive uh, motor uh, behaviors like uh, drinking Cokes over and over again, collecting napkins. Uh, uh, so the behaviors of FTD are very different than those from Alzheimer's, and, and that's because the anatomy, like you say, is different. We have a, um, a question um, which, that came in from a viewer which asks um, about that, that early stage and says, what are, what are the earliest verbal signs of brain disease? Um, for example, aphasia um, is oftentimes associated with strokes. Um, are there earlier verbal signs uh, with Alzheimer's? Uh, uh, great question, and absolutely the answer is yes. And I think, again, when we uh, focused in the 80s and 90s on memory, we, uh, we missed this story about language. And uh, we now know that there uh, are forms of Alzheimer's disease that begin with trouble with naming. Uh, Mari Lugorno Tempini from UCSF here has called this logopenic aphasia. So these are people who don't present necessarily with memory problems, but they're struggling terribly finding the right word. Uh, when they uh, talk to someone, they are, you know, going in circles around words that they can't uh, find. And then eventually this speech becomes what we call empty. They're saying a lot of words, but they're not communicating very much. And again, this is geography. This is when Alzheimer's disease starts on the left side of the brain uh, in naming areas, then this is what we see very early. Frontotemporal dementia, when it starts on the left frontal lobe or left anterior temporal lobe, also we get very, very strong language presentations. So um, we have um, uh, another question that's come in saying, um, this viewer saying, I've heard from caregivers that non-drug solutions like Reiki have helped their loved ones who experience aggression and changes of personality. Um, are there any, um, is there any evidence behind non-drug um, approaches to help behavior? Actually, before you answer that, um, I will say we get a lot of 
questions and comments around CBD oil, cannabis oil, um, in terms of people administering it and finding that it, it does. But, you know, again, it's not researched, but it's just comments that we're getting from our community that they do give um, their loved one a little CBD and, and they've seen that it does calm them down. But so what about the non-drug approaches? Is anything um, proven to work? Yeah, I, I would say definitely. Um, and, and let me say this in a, uh, in a, a slightly cautious way. So we always start with behavior first. What is the environment around that person? What are the triggers for bad behaviors? Can we change the environment? Can we tr uh, change the triggers? Uh, is this person only problematic when they go into an elevator because they touch everyone in the elevator? That's a simple one. You don't bring them into elevators so, or you bring them into elevators by themselves. Uh, so I think thinking very carefully with a family about the environment of their loved one, thinking about uh, non-medicine-based uh, approaches is incredibly important. But I will say there's another side to this, and that is that uh, in our research at UCSF, uh, we have learned that we, uh, to some degree, can predict caregiver distress just based on where the brain atrophies. So if this uh, disease begins in the frontal lobes, no matter what the caregivers do, uh, the behaviors are a problem, uh, sometimes a very big problem. And, and uh, this is sometimes uh, overwhelming and very, very difficult to deal with. So absolutely start with what we can do non-medically. And the truth is the medicines that we have for this are, are far from, I would say, satisfactory even. So one of the things I always tell a loved one when I start working around a behavior is I'm going to try some things and first try non-medical. Then uh, I think about uh, medicines that might be helpful. But I always point out that none of these medicines uh, may help the behavior. Uh, so this is an area we really need new solutions. I'm excited to hear about the CBD. Uh, we hear it from patients. We've uh, thought about it as a team. And this is something that really needs a, a study. And, and my guess is there will be select people who are exquisitely sensitive in a good way to this approach and others where it might be deleterious. And I think sorting that out uh, is really important so that we can make sure we put the right people on the right medicine if we're going to use one. So is there evidence out there uh, that behavioral strategies do indeed work? So, for example, you know, we've heard that story over and over again. The housekeeper who has been with a family all their lives is suddenly stealing. Right. Um, so what what does one do? Do you I mean, we, we're told all the time to say um, to agree and change the subject. Do you yeah. fire the housekeeper? Like, what is what is the behavioral modifications in a circumstance like that? And are they? Do you find that they that manipulation can work? Uh, I would say almost always helpful. Uh, I think distraction uh, is important. Uh, remembering that a lot of our patients can't remember. So what's very very upsetting to them at one point is less so at another point figuring out what the triggers are, figuring out whether maybe one of the new medicines that's been started is actually making this worse rather than better. 
Uh, my rule of thumb is when there's a sudden behavior change, uh, take a broad look at uh, your loved one. Make sure they don't have an infection. They make sure that nothing's uh, changed in the brain. So yes, I, I think interventions help enormously. Um, and I think, uh, sadly, there are not many systems in the world where people think about this uh, all the time with uh, families. And I think we need more experts in this behavior management that think it, it's nothing out of the box. There's nothing that is uh, works for everyone. So getting the right solution for your loved one may require a lot of your thought and a lot of your you know, uh, hypothesis testing uh, within the home, uh, with, uh, at the marketplace, in the shopping mall. Because uh, I find uh, two times out of three, it's the family that figures this out, not the medical team. Do you feel as um, a researcher you're getting enough of the, these data points? Um, that, you know, because I, I, I've spoken to researchers before who've said, you know, caregivers are really at the front line of this um, of this disease. I mean, they, they're living with the patient. They're noticing things. Um, is research getting enough of these data points um, to really understand if there's there's patterns? I mean, I'm sure you see a ton of patients, but is there is there a need for, for more of this type of data? Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that uh, to date hasn't been extremely successful is uh, non-invasive monitoring, you know, where does somebody walk? Uh, uh, where does uh, somebody uh, move in the house? Uh, wh when do they seem to be agitated? And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, systematic evaluation of this, I think will be part of precision medicine in the future. So we will really get hard data points that we can think about with a family. This is the hour of the day where things fall apart. Why is that? What can we do in that hour to change this? But I, I think uh, sensors, monitors are going to help us. Uh, but keen observations from uh, the caregivers are, are probably right now the most important thing that, that we get. And we need more of this. And we have to listen as well. So we have a question um, one of our viewers wrote in about saying, do personality behavioral changes become noticeable around the same time um, that biomarkers, uh, you know, such as the plaques, uh, the tau tangles become detectable um, or can biomarkers be detected? I mean, we know that biomarkers like plaques in the brain appear decades before we actually see a symptom. But what about the personality changes? I mean, I've heard stories of um, loved ones who have never been a jealous spouse, but like years before all of a sudden became jealous, you know, and, and, and the person reflecting on that saying, I wonder if that was part of the disease that we just didn't recognize. Uh, yeah, it's a, a really exciting question. And it's, right at the cutting edge of our clinical research here. So uh, I would say in Alzheimer's disease, the thought was that if you have amyloid in the brain, um, that you are not really going to exhibit uh, symptoms until you start to get um, uh, close to the dementia period. And and the, the mythology is that you don't have behavior problems until if you're years into the illness. Uh, our group, other groups, Carolyn Fredericks at Stanford has a really nice study that she's just published from the Baltimore uh, longitudinal um, effort. And uh, in this study, they looked at people uh, over 15 to 20 years, 
they got personality measures uh, throughout the course of this. And Carolyn was able to go backwards and think about the personality measures decades before the person actually got sick and has pointed out that on some of these personality measures, neuroticism, uh, uh, introversion are early features of the disease. In front of temporal dementia, almost always behavior precedes the uh, clinical diagnosis of dementia. So uh, these are people who lose their money, they make bad financial decisions, they alienate people around them, they get in trouble in the, in the HR area, not because they can't remember, but because they're disagreeable and they don't follow orders. And, and, and so, uh, yes, in FTD, we see these behavior changes many years, I think, before a dementia happens. With the Parkinson dementias, like Lewy body, I also think there's often a very strong signal of mood and anxiety. So these are people who years before they actually develop a motor problem, develop for the first time in their life a major depressive episode or a huge anxiety disorder that requires medications. So uh, a viewer who's watching right now has asked, um, made the comment that oftentimes uh, you're talking about a caregiver and a dementia patient who are in their senior years. Um, if your team finds that a patient and the caregiver are both really going downhill, what interventions are available to give them help? So this raises a very uh, good point, which is, you know, oftentimes we start to worry more about the caregiver than the actual patient because it's having such a, a terrible impact on the caregiver. I'm, I'm really glad uh, this person asked that question. And it's something that we focus on from the first visit. Uh, we look at the caregiver and uh, often we hear they've been saintly and what they've done uh, to look after their loved one, and we acknowledge it. We recognize it. Sometimes uh, people in their own community, even family members, will blame them for the problems of the loved one. It's almost never their fault, and almost always they have done a superhuman job of uh, uh, helping the patient. So that's the first thing. The second thing we talk about is their health. Uh, we know caregivers, 15% of them say they get a serious medical illness uh, that they believe is related to caring for a loved one. 50% get a depressive episode. We think the stress and the depression and anxiety might even be a risk factor for brain disease later on. So our interventions are often just as uh, intense uh, for the caregiver as the patient. And it's also very important to point out if they don't do well, the person they love and are caring for will do terribly. So their health is, uh, it's almost like on the airplane with uh, when the airbag uh, drops. Uh, 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 make sure your airbag works first and then uh, put it on your children. So this is really important and it's a great question. So um, is there, I mean, you, you obviously see a lot of patients, you hear about a lot of things, um, you help people um, adapt behaviors. Um, in your practice, what, what are the things that come up the most? And I think you have a lot of caregivers out there thinking, you know, for my own health, what is it that works? What, what would you tell me to do? Because a lot of people don't have a lot of room in their lives to do things for themselves. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the first thing I always say is uh, you must make room for uh, your health. And uh, I think the themes that have gone on are make sure you don't have cardiovascular risk factors. Make sure your blood pressure is uh, in the normal range uh, almost all the time. Uh, do what you can uh, to eat a healthy diet. Uh, the uh, diets that are rich in fats, that are rich in sugars, uh, unprocessed uh, process sugars are clearly not good for brain health and uh, they're not good for heart health either. Uh, exercise is unbelievably important. We know that if you are a caregiver and uh, are exercising in the bottom quartile, you are much more likely to get a dementia yourself. So these are things that, uh, you know, we really insist on 30 to 40 minutes, uh, uh, four times a week, really important that uh, somebody always gets that. Another viewer um, has just written in asking, how do you uh, start a, a conversation about a diagnosis of FTD, um, FTD or dementia uh, that you suspect um, based on personality changes? So uh, it is tricky. There, there could be a long period of time where a person is exhibiting strange behavior. Uh, they don't necessarily think, and they're probably not thinking, oh, I have dementia. So how do you start that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I must say that in, in 2018 and certainly before, most of the people we see with frontotemporal dementia, by the time they reach us, have a full-blown, uh, horrible, horrible behavior problem. So I think the frontotemporal dementia patients are much more likely to be incarcerated, uh, see HR people, uh, get into marriage counseling. But by the time we see them, they have a pretty profound deficits and also atrophy on the brain uh, scan. So I think for us, it's really often very clear cut by the time we see them. Uh, I think uh, these people in the much earlier stages, uh, we just don't see them in a typical uh, memory practice. So how much do we know about um, hallucinations, Dr. Miller? I mean, we get a lot of comments around hallucinations um, and strange hallucinations. I mean, impossible hallucinations. How much do we know about why they are occurring inside the brain with this disease? Great question. And I, I think strongly associated with Parkinsonian dementias. Um, why is that? Well, I think uh, we have learned that low uh, acetylcholine in the brain is a very important factor. So if your brain acetylcholine goes down, which it does profoundly in the Parkinsonian dementias, uh, you have a tendency to see things that aren't there. Uh, what exactly is that? Can you explain to our audience what is acetylcholine? Yeah, so acetylcholine is a chemical that helps your brain to focus. And I think when it's not uh, working well, uh, all sorts of things flood into your brain uh, you have trouble processing them. You have trouble knowing what's real and what is not. And, and so sometimes with this, people get what we call a delirium. They're confused. They're hallucinating and they're confused. They can't attend from one moment to the next. So at least in some people with hallucinations like this, uh, the uh, traditional cholinesterase inhibitors are very helpful. Uh, and I think can really dampen down on these hallucinations. Some they don't. So I, I think it's uh, sometimes disappointing for us.
What do we know about sundowning and why? I mean, you know, you look to the moon and you say, why all of a sudden do the hallucinations or the strange behavior come out when the sun goes down? Do we know anything about that or is it being studied? I, I think it is studied and I think it's still an area that we're not sure about. But I think the same theme is if uh, elderly people uh, are not stimulated, if uh, the room is darker, they don't see as well, um, they're tired, maybe they're wearing down a little bit toward the end of the day, it tends to bring out the worst in them just like it tends to bring out the worst in little children around the end of the day if they've been tired and overstimulated. So I think that's another theme about this. A lot of elders are overstimulated to begin with if they have Alzheimer's uh, so or Lewy body. So it is a struggle for them to get to that late hour in the day when uh, they're uh, trying to go to sleep. And sometimes they don't sleep very well either. So this really exacerbates that problem in the evening. Um, but it's very common and I think uh, uh, many caregivers notice this. So with um, change, I mean, we know if when a person has a diagnosis or um, has symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, there's nothing really you can do to get your memory back or make the memory better. But on the behavioral side, um, is there is there room for repair if if somebody is you know being irrational if they are having tantrums is there a reason to give hope and belief that those could be modified um, either through and, and and actually reversed uh, in the brain um, or is it much like memory where you know the deterioration uh, means you're you're probably not going to get it back I, I think both are true. So I think in some people, an acute deterioration, I always assume that if we modify the risk factors for that acute deterioration, the person will return close to where they were before. On the other hand, if people have long-standing, relentless uh, behavioral disturbance, uh, I think it makes it less likely that any intervention is going to uh, dramatically change. And sometimes the only intervention that will work is placement, where the person, uh, you know, is an environment where the uh, behaviors are not as distressful and uh, can be managed better. How much is routine important um, to for for behavior modification? Is it important to have the same routine, the same, um, give the patient the same expectations? Does that help with behavior? Very much so. I think uh, uh, a lot of times families will say, well, can we go to Europe and, uh, you know, take a very complicated uh, trip? And, you know, we don't want to deny people pleasure. But a lot of times, often the greatest pleasure once you start getting Alzheimer's disease is in routine, is uh, having a world that is predictable. Uh, and so, uh, you know, sometimes these trips that someone had thought about for many years may not bring the kind of joy that... Uh, people hope for. And I think routine is incredibly important. Same time breakfast, same time lunch, same dinner. Predictability, I think, is something that diminishes the stress on the patient. So there's obviously a lot more research that has to go into to some of these um, behaviors um, and you know deterioration inside the brain. What, where do you think we need to go back? Like, give us a snapshot of 
really where research is in this, um, where we are today and where we really need to go. Where should the priority be um, in terms of discovery? Uh, what, what do we most urgently need to know about the most? Yeah, so I, I think if we're thinking about the, the broad field, I think definitely we want to be able to diagnose uh, this process uh, as early as possible. If it begins in uh, early adulthood, we want to know when it begins. I think some of the approaches uh, use biomarkers, neuroimaging, blood tests that show maybe some disruption of neuronal function. Uh, this is a huge focus of our entire field. What is the earliest manifestation of this disease? As a behavioral neurologist, I think where is very important. So I want to know where in the brain uh, is there dysfunction? Why does dysfunction in that area chemically lead to a behavioral disturbance? Are there chemicals, you mentioned CBD, uh, that might modify uh, the uh, chemical anatomy of this disorder. Uh, and then I, I think that, you know, the biggest thing that you all and we all are excited about is interventions. We think we understand to some extent how Alzheimer's, different subtypes of frontotemporal dementia develop. So I, I think really the pharmaceutical trials are moving into a, a very exciting time. I don't think amyloid lowering by itself will be the only answer. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, but I think we now have tau lowering approaches, anti-inflammation approaches. And, 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 and I think this field is moving in the direction that HIV did uh, in the 1980s, where one medicine by itself didn't work, but a cocktail of medicines uh, kept the disease under control. And I, I think if you asked uh, every leader in our field about uh, where they think the field is going, I think that's our aspiration. And um, really highlighting the importance of taking care of your brain before there's a problem, right? I mean, there are things we know that are good for our brains. So why not do it earlier to prevent a later stage uh, where you become more vulnerable to disease? Absolutely. And I, and I think we now know that about uh, one third of dementia uh, is caused uh, or contributed to by preventable things. So cardiovascular risk factors, sleep disturbances, uh, traumatic brain injury, things that I think as a society uh, we need to think about as protection. And this, I should add, uh, hits the lower socioeconomic groups the most severely. So the poorer that someone is, the more likely they will suffer from one of these preventable uh, components of dementia. And more research has to go into why? Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, we still have many questions. Uh, important one, uh, is pollution important to the development of dementia? This is a worldwide epidemic and many of us uh, believe that the data is starting to suggest that pollution is a, a risk factor for dementia. So I, I think uh, as we get more uh, serious about this, we're gonna find more and more risk factors that a society could change. So I just wanna address this one question because it's one that comes up and someone has just asked. Um, 
What are your thoughts on um, supplements? Because, you know, there, I, I think there's more research actually going into um, supplements. We spoke last week with um, a researcher who was looking at turmeric and curcumin um, and the anti-inflammatory properties and the impact on the brain. So where are we there? And, you know, is there something that we should know that we don't know? Um, or is there something more that needs to be, is it something more that needs, again, needs to be studied? Here's what I think people should know. Big hype, little data. Uh, I'm really afraid that there are people that tout uh, all sorts of supplements that have never been studied, probably do more harm than good. I think turmeric uh, cumin uh, is a good thing to think about. The initial tr uh, trials were negative in this space. So I, I think Beware of doctors with many supplements uh, to cure your uh, cognitive disorders because the, the proof of this is almost negligible. Yeah. Well, certainly an area that needs um, a lot more research before we can determine, um, you know, the, the efficacy. So, uh, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time um, and, and you know, wholeheartedly for your work. Um, you're doing some great research. Um, the behavior, uh, more attention to behavioral aspects of this disease indeed is is greatly needed. So we're, we're really... Um, happy and, 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 and grateful to hear from researchers such as yourself uh, to, to let us understand um, really where science is and, and what more needs to be done. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you and thank you to all your listeners. Uh, what you're doing is very important together. So really honored to be with you, Deborah. Great, thank you. And if you've missed any of this broadcast, uh, we will repost it on Being Patient on both um, our site, beingpatient.com, and also our Facebook page. So thanks very much for joining us this time. If you have further questions for Dr. Miller, please paste them um, on our Facebook group and, and we'll try to get you answers. I know you're a busy man, but you know maybe if there's a couple more that come in, uh, we can direct them your way. Delighted to, to answer any I can. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Done? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, just give me one second.